Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Louise Penny at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. Canadian mystery phenom Louise Penny is the author behind the wildly popular Chief Inspector Armand Gamache series, set in Quebec but sold around the world in 20 different languages. She published Still Life, the first of that set, to great acclaim in 2005. Between the 10 installments to date, Penny has won or been in contention for nearly every major prize awarded in the mystery genre. Five Agatha Awards, four Anthony Awards, two Barry Awards, two McCavity Awards, and an Edgar Award. In addition to her writing, Penny has also executive produced the 2013 film adaptation of Still Life. The 10th Gamash novel, The Long Way Home, is now available. Wow! Oh my God, what a turnout! This is fantastic! Thank you! Wow! Oh! It, I can't tell you how exciting this is for me. And I really, I was determined to come to, to um, Minnesota and, I, and uh, the Minneapolis area. You know, I, I worked and lived in Thunder Bay for many years. We used to come across to Duluth, of course, but I, unfortunately I never got to Minneapolis. But I did get here. Um, uh, about, with, I think it was with my third or fourth book, uh, but haven't been back since, so this is <laughs> remarkable. Thank you. Yay! I'm not actually checking my emails, just so you <laughs> Not quite that obnoxious, but what I would love to do, for those of you, does anyone here follow me on Facebook by any chance? Oh, wonderful. Oh, I'm happy about that. Um, what I try to do, although last night in Omaha I totally forgot, um, but what I like to do is take a photograph of, of these events. But I, you know, which, if you're here with someone you shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, like you. <laughs> so, frankly, I don't care. But, um, so I, if, you can, if you got a book, my book, Hold it up. <laughs> this is also so that I can prove to the publisher that I was actually here. So just a sec. I'm going to go over there and then get the whole sweep. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I, I mentioned being here uh, in, in the Minneapolis area many years ago. And, and, you know, I look out at all of you and I really am overwhelmed and I'm so deeply touched because, well, for all sorts of reasons that you can imagine, but one of them was that it wasn't always like this. When I first started going out, nobody showed up. <laughs> it was dreadful. 
And by Chrissy, it took me 45 years to write the first book. And in those 45 years, I had spent a lot of time imagining what a book tour would look like, which is actually a lot like this <laughs> for my first book. <laughs> it also would include a private jet, which has not shockingly shown up yet. I'm going to write a stern letter to somebody. Um, but, but when my first book came out, Still Life, I got in touch with the publisher. Because as I said, I'd been spending all this time dreaming of the book tour and practicing my Oprah interview, <laughs> so I, which always started with good question, Oprah. And then, then we would become best friends. <laughs> so I called up. Still Life was about to come out. And I, and I called up the publisher, and I said, I'm ready for my book tour. <laughs> and he said, who is this? <laughs> so I explained, and he said, well, no, this is a debut novel. It's a first novel. Nobody is going to come out to see you. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so I got into it. talked to my husband, Michael. And I said, you know what? Let's take the advance. We'll use it to buy a cup of coffee and discuss <laughs> sending ourselves on tour. So poor Michael, okay. <laughs> so we said, we sent ourselves on book tour, not for the first one, I have to say, the first one, but certainly for the second. We went out and the publisher was right. <laughs> Nobody came out all across the United States. It was, except for Michael, of course, poor, and, and some, often, you know, some poor caretaker who's leaning on the broom waiting for me to stop talking to my husband, probably wondering who this crazy woman is who's, you know, standing at the front of the bookstore talking to nobody. The worst thing, though, that could happen, because, you know, if nobody shows up, it's not really the end of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's humiliating and it's devastating, but it's, at least it's a private humiliation. And you can sort of pretend like, like it either didn't happen or it's all part of the long-range plan and this is good. Everything is falling into place as it's meant to. Thank God nobody showed up. Excellent. <laughs> and then we could go. You know, Michael and I could say, oh, well, let's go and we'll have dinner. The problem came when one poor soul showed up. <laughs> you know, and she's sitting basically where you're sitting. Now, she doesn't know that there's nobody else behind her. <laughs> I can see. You know, so I get up, and, and then at some stage, she generally turns around and realizes <laughs> that she's all alone. It's, and you see the horror in her face when that happens. And, and at that stage, I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, and frankly, we're both wishing she would just die. <laughs> That was, that was the first couple of book tours were hideous. And then, then they got a little bit better and a little bit better. I'll tell you, though, probably the worst experience was a, a, a book tour in, in, in New York or a book stop in New York where my publishers are. Like, up until now, I was able to kind of lie because what do they know, right? <laughs> well, I didn't lie a lot because they would know. You know, I said there were 3,000 people there and, and not a single book sold. <laughs> I can't explain it. <laughs> so we went to New York, and the publishers came, and nobody else. <laughs> oh, it was awful. Oh, but uh, 
you know, that was, that was the first little bit. And I, as I said, it took me 45 years to, to, to write the first book. What I'd love to do today is just is spend about 25 minutes talking a little bit about, the pro, about how I came to develop Three Pines. It's very difficult to talk about the specific book, so I, I, I won't. If you have questions about the characters or the books, I'm happy to answer them, but I do ask that you be a little bit sort of careful, circumspect with, with how you word your questions. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was about your age. How old are you? Eight. That's exactly the age. What do you read? Louise Penny? Did you say Louise Penny? <laughs> she did. I'm sure she did. <laughs> I, was, I was a very shy child. And I think that now getting to know a lot of uh, authors, I realize that it's not uncommon, and I think a lot of readers might be, you know, a little bit shy. We, we like, we find solace in stories. Um, but I was also a very fearful child. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of other people. I was afraid of the morning dew. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of holes. I was afraid of everything. To the extent where all I wanted to be was in my bedroom with a book, reading. And to be honest, that's still my favorite place. Michael calls me a horizontalist because I'm always, <laughs> <laughs> my entire drive all day is to get horizontal. Um, but it got to the stage when I was a child that as punishment, when I was bad, my mother would send me outside to play. <laughs> I was reading Charlotte's Web and I could still feel the nubbly bedspread underneath me. And my, my principal fear, and it's, I think this is not unusual for children, was spiders. And I was reading Charlotte's Web. Now, it's possible I was a slightly slow child. <laughs> so I was about halfway through Charlotte's Web before I realized <laughs> that Charlotte was a spider. Now, to be fair to my eight-year-old self, I, I, I think I, I knew that Charlotte was a spider. But what happened at that moment that was particularly magical was what I realized was that I loved Charlotte. And I cared for her, and I didn't want anything bad to happen to her. And in that instant, my biggest fear in life was lifted. And for a child whose entire existence was guided by what is the least fearful thing to do at any moment, least scary thing to do, that was massive. That was power beyond imagining. And I wanted to be part of that. I understood at that time the power of storytelling, the power of the word to heal. And so I, I knew at that moment I, would, I just read everything I could find, not simply to heal myself. And I still find great comfort in, in books. Whenever I'm, I'm sick or when I'm, I'm hurt or when I'm afraid or when the world has been cruel, I will always find solace in books. Later in, in life, obviously, like most of us, I discovered the power of the word to do great damage. But I knew the opposite was true. And, I, and that, for me, was life-changing. And from that moment onward, I wanted to be a writer. Now, I was eight years of age. I didn't actually start writing until I was well into my 40s. Because, of course, the fearful child becomes this slightly less, but still fearful teen and young woman and, and so on. And, I, I, and one of my principal fears, I realized, was trying to write and not being able to, to be found wanting, to have the one, 
the one thing I really thought I was meant to do, my dream, and suppose I test it, and I realize I can't do it, and then I, I lose the dream. It's like, it's like one of the themes of, of waiting for Godot, maybe dreams are better left untested. Well, I'll tell you, that's not true. I, um, I, I ended up becoming a journalist, and then I, I, you know, I just, I got to the stage, and I think a lot of women do, and I suspect men do too, but my experience is my own and with my, my women friends, that we reach a certain age and we look at where we are, we assess where we are, and, and, and I did, and I realized that I couldn't see doing this as a journalist for another 30 years, and I realized that the joke's over. I really, I really have to try to do what I wanted to do. And I came home at about the same time, and Michael said to me, if you would like to, and I was exhausted and tired and, and burned out, and he said, if you would like to try to write that book that I know you've always wanted to write, said, the most beautiful thing, which I think is right up there with when he said, I love you, <laughs> he said, I will support you. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, isn't that lovely? Because, you know, when you say, I love you, there's not necessarily a lot of stuff expected. You know, you don't have to necessarily prove it a, a lot. I support you comes with a whole lot of expectations attached, and thank God he meant financially. <laughs> <laughs> Poor man, he had no idea what he was in for. Then I made a terrible tactical error, though. I got on CBC Radio. I was a host at the time on CBC Radio. And I, and I, told, I announced that I was going to quit work in order to write books. And I may have intimated I was going to write the best book ever written. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, why bother, right? And then people would come up to me. I, I, then I suffered five years of writer's block. Five. Five years, and it's not like I was writing and I didn't really like what I was putting. I wrote nothing. I counted the words and they came to zero. <laughs> nothing. It got to the stage where Michael was afraid to ask me, how's, how's the day going, dear? It's not that I was surly, he just didn't want, he didn't want the truth. It, it was a little bit like, slightly reminiscent of my mother when I turned 30 and had no prospects and she, she stopped asking. <laughs> You know, have you met any nice men lately? Have you met any nice women lately? <laughs> any farm animals you find attractive? <laughs> she just stopped asking completely. And the same with Michael, he just stopped asking. <laughs> uh, so, but, but having been a journalist and covering a number of events, many of them bad, of course, but not all of them, I realized that and I'm not telling you anything I'm sure you don't already know, that, that a, a, a catastrophic event doesn't happen all on its own out of the blue. Once you start doing a bit of a post-mortem on the event, you realize it's a series of smaller, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an accumulation of smaller events that lead to the one big. Had you turned left instead of right? Had you left the house five minutes earlier? Had you worn yellow instead of, and, and so on and so forth? Uh, then the event would not have happened. And, and looking back on my life, I realized this miracle that is today, that has led me here today in front of all you wonderful people, is really an, 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 an amalgamation of a whole bunch of smaller things, and like grace notes, that as they happened, I didn't really recognize them for what they were, but that they had to fall into place for all of this to happen. 
One of them was that we left, we were living in Montreal at the time, and we left Montreal and moved south of Montreal to a little village just north of the Vermont border. Some of you might recognize <laughs> what I'm <laughs> describing. The other thing that was really pivotal was that I fell in with a group of women who were all creating. Some were poets, some were dancers, some were uh, artists. Uh, some writers, um, and they called themselves Lay Girls. And we got together once a month, and they invited me to join them because they knew I wanted to be a writer. They also knew that I wasn't yet writing. All of them were producing, and I was the one person who wasn't yet, and they never once insisted that I explain or, or um, earn my receipt at the table. Never once. They just allowed me to talk about my process. I, they allowed me to listen to them. I went to their openings, I went to their shows, and I saw some amazing triumphs, some great successes. But I gotta tell you, I saw some big stinkers. Too. <laughs> some, you know, just and it didn't matter. That was, that was the grace. The next day, they still got out of bed, they put their clothes on, they walked down Main Street, magnificent. It didn't matter. Clearly they would have preferred a triumph. But the fact that it wasn't didn't kill them. What would have killed them was not trying. And that's what was killing me. And I had to see it time. I am embarrassed to stand in front of you and tell you at the age of almost 50 how many times I had to see that before I understood that it was a lesson for me as well, that trying and failing wouldn't kill me. The last thing that had to happen that I looked on my bedside table and I realized that I, I read, like many of you, I read all sorts of things, but really well represented there was crime fiction, particularly the, the traditional, the, the Niall Marshes, the Josephine Tays, the Agatha Christie's, um, P.D. James, and I've always loved them. And it just, and again, sitting on my bed, you know, I can feel the, I realized Charlotte's a spider, and maybe I should be writing crime fiction. And th the insight that happened at that moment was that, and I didn't realize I'd been doing this, but I had, the opinions of others had meant so much to me all my life. And I had been trying to write a book that would impress my mother, <laughs> that would impress my brothers, that would impress all the teachers that gave me C's, even when I was trying, <laughs> that would impress the neighbors, that would impress the woman who voices my GPS, recalculating, recalculating. <laughs> She's not an idiot. <laughs> I was trying to write a book for them. And, what, and the insight I got in that instance was I needed to write a book for me. Just for me. Just for me. A book I would love to read. And so that's what I did. I, I threw away all my preconceptions, all my notes, everything. That, that I wasn't writing, and I sat down and I created a village I would live in. I created characters I would like as friends, many of whom were inspired by my friends. And I created a main character whose company I would enjoy, Gamash. Because I realized that there was a pretty good chance this book was never going to be published. I wanted it to be published. There was a pretty good chance it wasn't going to be, because frankly, most books aren't. So the writing of it had to be reward enough. I had to love the writing of it because two years or three years down the road when it's finished, 
that may be the only enjoyment I get. So every decision I made was selfish. None of it was calculated. If I was doing it for the market, I would have had bombs exploding and you know, kidnappings and terrible things happening. But I didn't, because I didn't, I wasn't interested in reading that kind of book, so why would I write a book like that? I wrote a book just for myself. Um, and then I, you know, I can tell you a little bit more about some of the decisions I made if, that's, if that interests you. But what happened was, what I just want to get at is what happened after I finished the book. Now I have to say, writing the end was as moving as you would expect it was. It was unbelievable, unbelievable, because it meant that the contract with my eight-year-old self was done. That, that I, I might be, I, I, it may not be published, but at least I did my best. And that was the contract with myself. Not that it be any good, not even that it be published, just that it be finished. And that I could live with the disappointment, but I couldn't live with the regret. And so it was done. But of course I did want it published. So I went to my local independent bookstore and I spoke to a, a young clerk there who I'd never spoken to before. Her name's Jennifer. And I said, you'll never believe what happened. I finished my first book. And she said, oh my God, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Would you like to buy another one? <laughs> she did. <laughs> and if, if I had been wanting to write, because my ego demanded it, that would have been a shot right across that bow. Should have been big warning signs. So I sent it out everywhere. This was before the electronic, I think there was email at the time. This wasn't that long ago, but you couldn't attach, you know, they didn't, uh, agents and editors weren't accepting electronic submissions. So you, you did what was called a self-addressed stamped envelope. So you know the S-A-S-E's. So you, you print out the whole thing, then you write a covering letter, and then you find out who, and then you send it out to everybody in the world, and then you start checking the mailbox. <laughs> Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. And it's not like they sent back, this is promising, good luck, it's just not for us. There was silence. Nothing. It was awful. It was heartbreaking. It was devastating. It was like I hadn't even done it. I, like I had sent it into a void. It was awful. I was, I was just about to give up when I was shortlisted for this uh, uh, prize that I had actually even forgotten that I had entered. It was for Best Unpublished. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? <laughs> best Unpublished First Novel, and it was put out by the uh, um, Crime Writers Association in Great Britain, which is fantastic. They had 800 entries worldwide, and they had come up with a list of 10, and mine was on the 10th. Mine was on that list. And I remember opening up the email and screaming and falling to my knees. And, and Michael and the dog came running up, <laughs> wondering what in the world had happened. Because I knew something had changed. I knew there'd been a shift somehow, if not in the universe, then at least in my universe, something had changed. And that the prize wasn't necessarily winning. It was what you get is you get invited to go to the UK and you 
two hours, it was a, 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 like a dinner, two hours in a room with all these people I had been trying to speak to for years. They're locked in there with me. <laughs> so then this is where my journalism background came in quite handy because I, I, I research a lot and I, and I understand the value of that and that, that old saying, the, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And what I did was, I, I didn't know anyone in the UK, but I got in touch with as many booksellers as I could in London and I said, who are the top agents who represent crime fiction? And it boiled down to three names. So I, Michael and I went, got, went over to London, we went to the dinner, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't spend two hours talking to the waiter by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so the first person wasn't there, the second person wasn't interested, and the third person was drunk. <laughs> I didn't win. So, so I was feeling really, I was feeling pretty, you know, a, a little bad. Um, and we went to, a, a, we were, had been invited to a cocktail party a few days later and I was saying to Michael, I don't want to go. I don't even know the person who's throwing it. It's a friend of a friend of a friend. It was around Christmas time. They seem to do this in UK. They do what's called a sale of goods. So someone will have a private, a cocktail party in their private home. They'll invite all their friends and it'll be a, a fundraiser for uh, an, um, an organization. In this case, it was Afghan women. And so they got all sorts of beautiful items. And you go, you have a, a drink, and you buy things. So I, I don't want to go. And he said, come on, let's, let's you know, get out of the fetal position, have a shower. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll wipe the encrusted drool off your face. And let's go. So we went. And there was this most beautiful blue pashmina there. I mean, we sort of bumbled around, and there was this beautiful blue pashmina, and I, and I reach for it, and there is this, this claw-like hand reaches for it at the same time. And then it's going to only happen between a, a Brit and a Canadian. Then there's this very polite sort of tug of war, <laughs> and neither of us is admitting it's happening. You know, so it's a nice weather we're having. <laughs> she says to me in this very imperious voice, who are you? And I say, my name's Louise Penny, like she should know. She said the most incredible thing. She said, I have your name on a post-it note on my computer. She's drunk. <laughs> so I said, well, who are you? And she said, Teresa Chris. And it was the third name on that list in all of London, all of London. And had I not, you see, this is the amalgamation of small things. She could have said Teresa Chris and I not know who in the world she was. I could have reached for something else. There were, the place was packed. I didn't speak to 90% of the people there. You know, wow. It was, obviously, I let go of the pashmina. <laughs> <laughs> And we've been together ever since, we've been, and we've become good friends. And although she has the, obviously the British accent, and, and I, this may just be the Canadian in me. Uh, you probably don't. I, maybe you do, but I certainly. Every time someone speaks to me in this kind of fruity kind of <laughs> accent, so every time, in other words, Teresa calls me up, no about doesn't matter what, I hear an implied you idiot. <laughs> so this this. 
this story still life that nobody wanted. She sold to, the, to New York, to London, to Germany, 26 languages. Nobody wanted it. Thank you. It was, it was such an eye-opener that Michael and I came back and we started the same award in Canada because we were aware that there, if, you know, that there are probably wonderful manuscripts under beds everywhere. And sure enough, the people who have won it so far have gotten uh, publishing contracts. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to pass it on. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Louise Penny and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering when the film adaptation of Still Life, Penny's first book, will be available. I was, I was actually the executive producer on it. It was, a, it was a very difficult process for me, I realized. I thought as executive producer, I would have some control. And it turns out being executive producer is a lot like being the Queen of England. <laughs> but, you know, you have the title, but you're not allowed to declare war on anyone. <laughs> so it was just a very oh, difficult process. Um, but to answer your question, apparently, it's, I don't, it's going to be broadcast apparently on Netflix, or available on Netflix, and Acorn TV, I think, is going to stream it, I guess. Um, and I think it's going to be available on Amazon.com, uh, and I think all this happens in the next month or so. Um, but as I say, you know, I've, I've, really, I've really just taken a step back from the whole thing because then I realized that I write the books, they're my books, the books are the books, and the movie is the movie. So take that for what it's worth. Our next question asker wonders about the four principles that lead to wisdom, a recurring theme in Penny's books, and where they came from. Can you remember what they are? All right, let's hear. Okay. They are, um, I don't know. I don't know. I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need help. I need help. Good for you. Well done. They are principles. And then the reason I, I principles live by, one of the reasons I put them in was I recognized the, their value for me personally. I got them from Michael. The first time I met Michael, the very first time I met Michael, we were at a meeting and he was chairing it. I didn't know who he was. And he opened up the meeting and you know, instead of calling for the minutes and calling to order and whatnot, he said, I, I want to share with you something that has become meaningful in my life, the four statements that lead to wisdom. And he said them, and I just, oh, I fell in love with him at that moment. And I think I stalked him. <laughs> anyway, I'm still stalking him 20, 20 years later. So that's, that's where they come from. And I, I don't know where he got them from, frankly. I'm, I'm sure he didn't make them up. I'm sure he, he read them um, somewhere. But for Michael's sake, we'll say that he made them up. This audience member asked Penny where the character of Ruth Zardo originated from. Now I have to say when I was creating the characters of in, in Three Pines and I said that I would choose, you know, 
people who I would choose as friends. I cannot say that I would necessarily choose Ruth as a friend. She terrifies me. Um, but I, I have known a couple of Ruth Zardos in, in my life, um, and, and uh, two. Can you imagine, like, wouldn't one be enough? <laughs> Neither of whom are poets, though, actually, but they're, they're truth-tellers. Now, the problem with these truth-tellers is that it's their truth, you know, and they seem to mistake, as Ruth sometimes does, fact and truth, and they're not the same thing. But she says these things as though they're actual facts, and they're, and they're not. But they're certainly her opinions, and she says them loudly. What I wanted to do with Ruth was, the books are about many things. They're, they're, they're probably least among them is death. I, some of the themes in them have to do with duality, with the beautiful village and then the horrific violation of this terrible crime, of um, the beauty of winter and the fact that it'll kill you. Um, the, 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 the public face that we all have, where we have learned, thank God, really, to be courteous and polite, and, and we tell someone, you know, I love your hair, even though in your head you're thinking, what a mess. <laughs> you know, who, who thought that pink hair would look good? <laughs> so, I, you know, the, the, that gap between what we say and what we think, between the public the face and our inner feelings. Um, and so the rest of the characters are really quite courteous, and we do see their inner thoughts, the darker inner thoughts, they keep them hidden. Ruth was born inside out. <laughs> Ruth has her, all of her vile thoughts on the outside, and she keeps that humanity and the love and the, the kindliness hidden inside. And we, as we get to know her, we get to see exactly why. And in the third book with the, the, the ducks, some of that comes out that the fear that, that everything she has loved leaves her, and so it's better not to love. Um, that's sort of her theory, which of course she can't actually stop herself from loving. Um, so that's where she came from. Also, I'm, I'm fairly aware too that one of the dangers in doing this was I didn't want them to be homo homogenous. I didn't want them all to be too good to be true. So Ruth kind of acts as a, as a sort of Greek chorus in Three Pines, and uh, that's where she comes from. And I, and I happen to read a lot of poetry. I love poetry. I get inspired by poetry. Many of the books are, most of the books are inspired by a few lines of poetry, different poems for, for each book. Um, in fact, in this book, Ruth quotes a line from Robert Frost. It's not from one of his poems. It's from a letter he wrote to a friend where he's talking about his creative process. And he says that for him, a poem begins as a lump in the throat. And, and Ruth quotes that in the book and said that for her, a poem begins as a lump in the throat. And Gamash thinks that's how a murder begins as well, as a lump in the throat. And for me, that's how a book begins, some, some strongly held belief, something that has moved me deeply. Because it takes me a year to write a book. So it can't just be plot. Plot wouldn't interest me all that much to, to keep me going back every day for a year, it has to be about emotions. It has to be about human beings. And, it, and that's, that's what interests me. The next question inquires about all the paintings that appear in Penny's books, including the one featured on the cover of The Long Way Home. Isn't that a great cover? Yeah. That's, that is a detail from a Clarence Gagnon painting. Clarence Gagnon was a Quebecois painter who painted in the area that Gamache goes to at some point in this book, Charlevoix. 
Um, and so the, the New York publishers were so taken by, by Clarence Daniel that they used a detail on it. And there's, there's a reason it's upside down. We didn't do that by mistake. Although, when they first sent it to me, because I hadn't seen the cover yet, and they sent it to me and they actually, instead of emailing it as they normally would, they, they printed one out and they wrapped it in a, 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 a book and they sent it to me and I opened it up and I almost sent off an email saying, this looks great, but did you know it's upside down? <laughs> it's upside down for a reason. And in fact, I should have known because I read the, wrote the book, so I know, <laughs> I know the symbolism of, of it being upside down. But isn't it genius to have a book wrapped in a painting? How wonderful is that? I'm just so touched. I myself don't paint. Um, art was not part of the conversation growing up. Books were, some music too, but not, not a lot of art. Um, what happened was, it's, my interest I think in art, it was really um, rooted in my early teens. And my mother at that stage, uh, for all sorts of reasons that many women have been through, um, had to go out to work suddenly. And, uh, and we didn't have any, you know, very much money, so she went out, she found whatever menial job she could. And when we got, she got the first paycheck, we thought maybe she would buy food. <laughs> but she didn't, she came home, she showed it to us, and she said, now, come on, get on the bus with me. So we got on the bus and we went down to an art store that she had, a gallery that she cropped past every day on her way to work, and we went inside and she bought a painting. And she said, I want you to remember this, that, that art nurtures. And that, that I have never forgotten. And so I, that's why it has, it is such a strong taproot in these, in these books. Our next question is when Penny started Still Life, did she project ahead 10 novels and have an understanding of where the characters and plot would be going? The answer is no. When I started Still Life, I believe I, I, I wanted it, obviously, to be published, and I wanted it to be a series. Um, but I didn't think it would actually happen, so I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking ahead. The only thought I had, and this had, speaks not at all to plot or character, was that I wanted, if I did get a publishing contract, I, I knew that Place was a character. I knew I wanted Three Pines, I wanted Quebec, I wanted there to be absolutely no doubt when people pick up the book in the first paragraph that they are in Quebec, that there's no ambiguity about it. So part of my delight in doing that, because I love where I'm, this, these are love letters to, to where I live and to the people I live with, um, I thought maybe the first four books, one could be set in, in a different season, so that if people read the first four books, if there are, they'll get a sense of what it's like to live in my area of Quebec for a year. The changing seasons, the, the changing cuisine, I wanted the books, too, to be sensuous. Not sexual, but sensuous. I wanted to engage the senses so that when people read the books, you, you smell the wood smoke, and, and you taste the croissant or the coffee, and you, you feel the scrape of the, of the winter against your cheeks, as, as you do here. Um, so that's, that's as far as I got. But it, was, it had nothing, as you can tell, to do with plot or, or character development or any of that. Um, that came later, as, as I got to know the characters more, as I got more confidence, as it became clear that the, the series would progress, um, I could see all sorts of interrelations happening. It's such a challenge for me, and I sometimes get it right and sometimes not, 
particularly in the first draft of a book, of, of having a goal, having knowing where I want it to end, but not holding on so tightly that there's no room for inspiration. So I need like a blueprint without strangling and smothering the story. And sometimes it's too loose and it all kind of falls apart in the first draft and then there's a lot of work in the second. And sometimes it's too tight and it's just not, it's just there's, there's no joy in it. There's no sort of life to it. So I'm, I think I'm getting a little bit better at that too, a little bit more confident. When I started the fifth book, which is The Brutal Telling, by then, <coughs> I had a very good sense of where I was going. I had already planted a lot of the seeds. And when I started The Brutal Telling, I knew how, how the light gets in would end. And a lot of it was, but still, there, it didn't, it, you know, a lot of things were wrapped up, but there are a lot of things placed there that are at na right now invisible to you that will come to fruition in later books, like the alien invasion. <laughs> Next, we go to an audience member asking about Clara and if her paintings actually exist or are imagined by Louise Penny. Um, no, I, I make them up, yes, for sure. And those, that, that's been a great joy, too. Of I knew that I wanted Clara to break out, but I didn't know in what direction, whether it would be terrific abstracts or sculptures or just what she would do. And, and to be honest with you, I cannot for the life of me now think of how I thought of portraits. And I think the first portraits that, that I describe is, is actually in the second book, A Fatal Grace, with the three, the three graces. With the, and, their, and the intimacy, the aching intimacy that, that they show and the joy that they have in, in their friendship. Because that's really what the books are about. Her paintings mirror my books. And they, the books are not about death although there is a death and often a terrible one with consequences, but they're about intimacy, they're about community, they're about belonging, they're about love and friendship and goodness, the fact that goodness exists. This question is whether or not Penny auditions voice actors for her audiobook. This audience member feels that the voice for the series is perfect. She's talking about Ralph Cosham. Do any of you read or listen to the audiobooks? Yes, I... I, I haven't actually listened to them because he's so good apparently that I, I don't want to run the risk of interfering with the voices in my head. Um, but he has become a good friend and he and I email all the time. The first time he emailed me, it must have been in the third book actually. I, and um, by the way, no, I had nothing to do with that. was just, you know, luck. Um, he emailed me because he wasn't sure. He reads them cold. He doesn't read it first. I know, isn't that extraordinary? Because he doesn't want to project unintentionally what's going to happen. So he discovers it as you discover it. Now he, he says, you know, he'll obviously sometimes have to go back and change an inflection or whatever because uh, he wasn't prepared for what happened or he wasn't happy with what he did, but he doesn't know what's happening on the next page. Um, so he got in touch with me this was when Rosa first showed up and he, he, he sent me an email to say, now is the duck really supposed to be quaking? Because <laughs> I don't see why the duck is frightened. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's a typo, it's quacking. <laughs> 
but he doesn't need to get in touch with me very often because he, he just knows. He's got the characters. He knows. And he won the Audi Award, which is the, the, the Oscar for, for audio recordings. He won it two years ago for The Beautiful Mystery. And isn't that amazing? And he's such a nice man. And he, he, when he was shortlisted, nominated for it, he got in touch with me. And he's in Washington and I'm in, uh, near Montreal. And he said, would you be my date? <laughs> so I said, of course I will, Ralph. So he got on his tux and I got on my finery and we met in New York City and we were sitting side by side holding hands because he'd been nominated many times and he'd never won. And he turned to me and said, I want to win. <laughs> oh God, please, <laughs> or, or let him win. I don't care whose name they call, we're going up. <laughs> <laughs> And didn't they call his name? Oh my God, I was so excited. I got up on stage. And it's not, I mean, the author isn't supposed to, but I was, oh my God, it's Ralph. <laughs> There's a wonderful article in the Washington Post. I think it's from last week. If you Google Ralph Caution Washington Post, it's a profile of him, but also of him as Gamash and reading the books. And, and so you get some insight into how he does it and why. This audience member wonders if Armand is based on a real person. Well, the name comes from our tailor. Not Armand, his name is Jean Gamache. And when, when I got to that stage in the first manuscript, first draft of Still Life, I hadn't yet, it was about three, in, in the first draft, Armand didn't show up until about three chapters in. And Michael and I were going to a wedding and he needed a new suit. We'd just moved down out into the country. And so we thought, well, we'll give a local fellow uh, the business. And everyone recommended this fellow named Jean Gamache. So we went and he came out and he had the most wonderful, the deep brown eyes and that, that gentle, thoughtful look. And I just, oh. <laughs> so that's why I named him Gamache. I've always loved the name Armand. I wanted something that sounded sort of old world, old school. It's, it's not a common name anymore, uh, but, though it's not completely uncommon. And he's actually uh, based on, on Michael, my husband. His characteristics are very much like, uh, like Michael. We get this question a lot at club book events. What is a day in the life like for Louise Penny, and how does she prefer to write? But when I started writing, I have a study upstairs and we set it all up and the desk and the bookcases and everything and I found I couldn't write there. It was, I was too isolated. So I, I sort of crept downstairs and now where I write, I write, I generally start the first draft uh, in the winter. So it's sometime around February or March and so we've got when, you know, we live in the middle of the countryside on the side of a mountain in Quebec, so there's a big stone fireplace here and a blanket box, and I've got the laptop on the blanket box, and Michael is often behind me doing a jigsaw puzzle, and we've got, now we have Bishop, the, the new dog, uh, though it, it was Trudy lying in front of the fireplace, and I'm surrounded by poetry books and cookbooks. And yes, I am in pajamas. It's, Michael doesn't see me out of pajamas for like eight months of the year. <laughs> yes, no, I have the Vive Gamache. I don't know if I, any of you have seen the Vive Gamache Café au lait mugs. Yes, well, the, the, I, don't, I don't sell them, but the, the, our local bookstore, wonderful independent called Brome Lake Books, and it's Danny and Lucy, and, and they, they sell the books. The, um, well, they sell the books, but they sell the Vive Gamache mugs. But they, 
uh, my assistant Lise um, designed them, and so I, I drink cafe au lait and, and eat croissants. <laughs> That's the other thing in Three Pines. If you notice, there is not a single vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> they should all be dead of scurvy by now. <laughs> Our last question of the night comes from a gentleman commenting that with Penny's characters, there is a great deal of consistency, but they face a lot of twists and turns in each book. He wonders if Penny has a plan for each of her characters and how they will change throughout the series. You know, if you look at my life, just from the outside, for the last 15 years, it hasn't changed. You know, I have a little more gray in my hair, but, you know, I'm married to the same man, we have dogs, we live in the same house, so sort of all the externals are exactly the same, but I'll tell you, my life has changed in every way, hugely in, in 15 or, or 20 years. And the same with these characters. They live in the same houses, they look the same, they're still friends, but internally they've changed. Obviously, you couldn't have gone through what they've been through and not changed. Um, I have a certain idea of where they're going. And again, that sort of speaks to what I was saying before about having, wanting to have an idea of where they're going, but also being open to the unexpected, to uh, certain inspiration. So that's why, as I'm writing, I'll sort of drop little uh, thoughts. It's, it's almost like little sort of seeds for myself to come back to later. And some of them will never come to fruition. And some of them I'll pick up five books on and say, oh, now I can use that, or now I can use this. So the, the books are littered with seeds. They're, I'm like a chipmunk. I'm a literary chipmunk. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out. I have loved it. Thank you to the Fire Lake Library. What a wonderful library system. Thank you all so much. Well, that's it from our Scott County's Prior Lake Library event with Louise Penny. Catch our next Club Book event with Jennifer McMahon at Carver County's Chanhassen Library on Thursday, September 11th at 6.30 p.m. Meet Jennifer McMahon, get your questions answered, and book signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.